If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 is mostly um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or at least the latter half of it is. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but if you've been with us the past several weeks, you realize that's a terrible name for the sermon because it has nothing to do with the mountain. That just happened to be where he was speaking to his disciples. And we realize as we've been going through this that this entire message is two disciples, in other words, two individuals who have believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and confess that. But what does that belief look like? What does that life of faith look like? And he begins to explain that in a radically different way. In the setting, in the scene, is reminiscent of Moses in the Old Testament, the people coming to the mount, but they could not come all the way up or they would die. And Jesus in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, coming as the new Moses, fulfilling the Son of Man, where people are allowed not just to come to the mountain to, to be near and see God, but they were to come all the way up and actually touch Jesus and be healed. It is this new blessing that, that Jesus brings in this new covenant and relationship and opportunity. And in that, he begins to give the law or the truth and grace as it's recorded in John, this new revelation, this idea of how we are to live in faith as children of God. And it's captioned or captured at the very end by this perfect example in Luke chapter 7 of the greatest faith of anyone in all Israel. And what is so shocking and striking, it's a centurion, a Gentile, who had both wealth and tragedy in his life. And he chose to trust not just in Jesus, but his very word. And by doing so, Jesus says, this is the greatest faith essentially I've seen in all of Israel. Wouldn't that be great if Jesus were able to say that about you? That you have the greatest faith of anyone in the nation. Well, he was the perfect embodiment of what we're about to go over today. And we're going to briefly give you some context. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount occurred in the north of the country around the Sea of Galilee. And I've showed you pictures in the past of what it most likely was this photo is actually taken probably from the location of the Sermon on the Mount. But there are a couple other potential options that archaeologists talk to us about and say, well, it could have been over here because we weren't there, obviously. Well, option number three, I've showed you option number one, maybe option number two last week. Well, this is option number three. As you look across the Sea of Galilee, and this is looking towards Jordan, there's this entire ridgeline of basically flat top mountains that you can see in the background. Any one of those areas could have been the place, but because the uh, surrounding uh, discussion is around Capernaum, and Capernaum is most closely related to where this photo is taken, most believe that it was taken or Jesus spoke here. But that is another option, just to give you the idea of the scene. And one of the things that I, I really want to convey to you as I'm showing these photos you're here today. In fact, some of you are kind of bitter that you are here today. You'd rather be out in the park uh, but, or out in the mountains. But I, I want you to really understand because after age 13, I spent a lot of time in church and I associated going to church with being a good Christian. 
And you'll notice here in the background as you look on those mountains, there's no buildings. Church is not a building. And it's not even attending a place at a certain time and certain day. That's not church. Church is a group of people, believers and disciples coming together to worship, to encourage, admonish, build up, all that love one another, all these one another sayings that we see in Scripture. So as Jesus is talking, and we're about to read here and give you some context, think to yourself, and this is the main question I get from new believers. They say, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live as a disciple of Jesus? Is it just coming to church? Is it just Bible studies? I can do that. I'm like, no, it's not. That's, not even, that's a small, small part of it. Well, if you've ever asked yourself, how do I live for Jesus at work? How do I live for Jesus at home? This is the answer. This is the sermon that you've been waiting for. So here's the context. Let's begin in verse 27. Jesus says this, But I say to you who hear, and we covered this last week, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Four simple but radical things. If you're sitting here today and you're really full of anxiety and, and anger about anything that was declared this past week by our government leaders, I would just ask you, do you love them? Have you thought about praying for them? Do you speak well of them? Do you bless them? All of these things. Because believe it or not, it's freeing to you. All the anger, all the anxiety, they know nothing about that. This goes straight to your heart. When you have a relationship as a disciple of Jesus, you have the power and the ability to love your enemies. It's this radical change. Verse 29, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic as well. Give to everyone who begs from you or who asks of you. And for one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who uh, do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And here's this amazing passage. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And here's the, the payoff. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. There's this amazing reality. If we understand that we're living for eternity, no matter what happens to us in this world, we can have joy and peace and freedom, because we're thinking about something entirely different and living for something entirely different. Your reward will be great, and you'll be sons or daughters of the Most High. How amazing is that? What about your kids? Let's just pause here as we're, we're, we're just setting up the text. Do you want your kids just to be successful in this world, or do you want them to be an image of the character that you're trying to model? Not necessarily that you have, but that you're trying to model. 
Because if they do that, you will consider yourself probably a successful parent. That you've raised, raised good and merciful and kind and loving kids. And then you're proud of them someday. You're like, that's my son. That's my daughter. Yes, you're proud when they graduate high school or get a good job or get married, but you're proud of who they are, not necessarily where they go and what they do. So keep that in in the back of your mind as you're living every day, Monday morning, Tuesday. What does God want of you? He wants you to be a good son and daughter. Not necessarily to go to this job or that job or this school or that school. That's all fine. It's about who you are. And that's the big challenge, right? Changing who you are. Verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And that's where we pick up today's text because today's text and teaching of Jesus really lays out what does it look like to be merciful? What does it look like to be merciful as our God in heaven, our father in heaven who is merciful? How does that look like on your job, even in ministry? I first started ministry and I thought everyone was going to be nice and I realized God didn't bring me everyone who was nice. He brought me a lot of people who were nice, but he also brought me a lot of mean, hard-hearted people. I'm like, they're the ones, right? They're the ones who need Jesus the most. Maybe you have a few of those people in your life. But before we, again, go any further, remember, as we go over these things, as you just heard, this is a part of Jesus' teaching. It's a part of what God has for us in the New Testament. It doesn't speak to all of these things. And the very first example is this, beginning in verse 37. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. About every unbeliever that I've ever met knows this verse. They have no idea where it's at in the Bible, but they've heard it, right? Judge not, don't judge me, right? How many times have you heard that? Well, here's what we have to understand. Once again, this doesn't say all about what God has to say on judging. Just look at the last verse in today's message. So we're starting in verse 37. We're going to verse 42. Jesus ends with a parable and he says this, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Wow, that's some hard teaching, right? Can you imagine some pastor writing that out in a sermon? All right, this is the point you call everyone a hypocrite and then you resign. All right, (laughs) you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and notice this, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So it's not about not judging. It's about judging appropriately. So when he says judge not, number one, you don't get to be the judge. God is. So when we make judgments about what is sin and not sin, we're doing so not on our own authority, but on the very word of God. So we're not sitting in judgment. Do you know how freeing that is? But unfortunately, we live a life that doesn't always lead us there. As a matter of fact, we get in bad habits. I imagine we have 
some little kids and, I, and even teenagers sitting here today that are so tired of hearing their parents of telling them to do or not do certain things. Right? As a parent, you're constantly making judgment. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's bad. Quit doing that. And at some point, you're thinking about not just judging them, but actually condemning them and threatening them with their life if they don't straighten up, right? As, as a kid, right, how many times did your parents have to tell you to stop doing something? We recognize that we make judgments every day. That's what our entire judicial system is based upon, laws. We don't want to live in a lawless society. We get to see that on the news, some examples of what that looks like. So once again, Scripture isn't talking about never making a judgment, but who is the judge and who stands in authority? And as a parent, if you get tired of just saying, don't do something, put forward a little effort. And I know that's hard in the middle of this, maybe like Albertson's grocery stores, your kid is having a meltdown, but maybe try to memorize some of those scriptures with your kids about what God says we should be doing and shouldn't. What is sin? And what isn't. And so instead of just saying, don't do, say the Lord says. And then give the positive command of what God says we should do. And then you will begin raising your children in the image of Christ, not the image of Scott or mom. Judge not and you will not be judged. This amazing reality is the scripture talks about both judgment, forgiveness, condemnation. And if you do not sit on judgment on other people, God's not going to use that kind of judgment with you. Imagine if you served and loved a God whose judgment was constantly changing and completely arbitrary. And it was one day we're going to judge according to Mark, one day we're going to judge according to Kristen, and one day we're going to judge according to Paul. What if God's judgment was completely random and arbitrary? That would be so hard. But God doesn't judge like that, and he's not going to judge. So he says, don't judge, and you won't be judged. There's this beauty about resting and trusting in God alone and letting Him be the judge because He really is. And letting others know that, yes, they don't have to, to sit there and try to figure out, is this just or not just? They just have to trust in the judge, the perfect judge. The next part of the verse is, condemn not and you will not be condemned in verse 37. Once again, there's this beautiful picture that there's always hope in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. He took our wrath that we deserved. How many of you are condemning people for their actions that you see around you? It's really easy to get in that mode, right? Because it's so personal and so in your face and so different. It's really easy to condemn. But God says, don't condemn and you won't be condemned. It's this heart attitude. That's a lot different than just, hey, you want to be a good Christian, go to church. 
all of a sudden Jesus is like, all right, you really want to follow me as a disciple? Here's what you need to do. Don't judge, don't condemn. You don't judge, you won't be judged. You don't condemn, or you don't condemn, you won't be condemned. And once again, please hear me. This isn't erasing a moral standard in our lives and calling others and raising our kids to those moral standards. But those standards are set by God, not by Scott. And they're not even set by mom and dad. If you're in the habit of telling your kid, because I said so, (laughs) you've gotten lazy. Let's be honest. We've gotten lazy because I said so. And as your kids are looking at you like, yeah, are you listening to him, mom? (laughs) Remember, kids, don't judge, right? Don't condemn. We're supposed to love one another, encourage one another. Then this other aspect is amazing that we see in the last half of verse 37. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This is a truth that we see throughout Scripture. The standard for forgiveness is repentance. And if someone comes to you in in true repentance and they're a brother and sister and you're required to forgive them 70 times seven or this, this unlimited amount of forgiveness. But once again, this is not all that scripture has to say on the subject. This is not a license to sin. If you are a, are literally taking advantage of this in a relationship and just continuing to sin, depending upon someone's grace and forgiveness without any sort of repentance, you have to ask, are you really repentant? Because you're treading upon their forgiveness and grace. But that is the standard in Scripture. We're not required to forgive unless someone repents because that's how God forgives in most cases, but there is this high, incredibly high level of forgiveness that we see just really actually only two times in the New Testament. And it's when Jesus is dying on the cross and he asks them, he asks the Father, he, he cries out, Father, forgive those who are doing this. They know not what they do. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And then, Stephen, as he's being stoned to death, he cries out and asks, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. So there is this ability, and we can forgive, even if someone doesn't repent, but generally we're required to to forgive if someone genuinely repents. So let's step back here a second. Is there anyone in your life that you're standing in judgment on? Not in God's judgment, but in your own judgment. Is there anyone in your life that you've condemned? You've moved beyond judgment, but you've literally condemned them and given them no hope. And is there anyone in your life that you need to forgive? Or is there anyone in your life you need to quit treading upon their grace and actually finally repent? Verse 38, I love this. It says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Here's the imagery. First of all, I haven't seen anyone in here. I've seen a lot of masks. I've not seen anyone here wearing a cloak or a tunic, right? 
And that, that's the idea a lot of, of us have. Like, really, if I really have to be a disciple of Jesus, do I have to put on like some white robe and sandals and walk around Israel? Is that the highest level, right? I don't want to do that. I don't like the look of the cloak. It makes me look fat, right? <laughs> so, but here's the imagery. You have to understand, this is imagery first century. Take this for what you will. Imagine some sort of cup, maybe a measuring cup, a bowl, something along those lines. And what you need is you need uh, to go out and purchase some seed or some grain, maybe corn or wheat for your family for dinner, or maybe for your family for that week. And you go to the market and you hold out your cup because it's just kind of standard. They don't have little bags and measurement things there. And you give it to the merchant and he pours it in there and he just kind of gives it back to you and says, that'll be $5. And you're looking at it going, "Eh, I think you could have got a little more than that, right? Especially if you're poor. Well, here's the image. If you give, what will occur is that, and this is the interesting thing we're going to get to in just a minute, God will give back. And the image is, the seed is poured into the measuring cup. Then it's pressed down. Get as much as you possibly can in there. And then once it's pressed down, you kind of shake it to get all the little air pockets out. And you get the seeds all the way down. And then you take some more and you pour it until it's running over. You have, like when you go to the ice cream store, you don't want that little small scoop of ice cream. You want the big one that's barely can fit on the cup. Just have all the seed pouring over. And for $5, they give that to you. That's the generosity of God. And in what he does for those who are generous in giving. That's the imagery, and it's poured into the lap. It's this idea that it kind of runs over, and the person with the cloak has this fold or their lap, and they pour it in to to kind of carry it, because apparently they didn't have pockets back in the day, right? So you pour it into the lap. But here's the interesting part. Does anyone here today who has a Bible or maybe your app, and your favorite translation is the New American Standard? Raise your hand. All right, cool, cool. Well, then in your text, what you're reading is something kind of different. Instead of this implied uh, part of the verse, it actually inserts the word they. So instead of as the text flows in the ESV, where it implies that this is God doing this, it's almost like the Proverbs, where if you live in such a way where if you give, others will give back. In other words, you do, if you live rightly, you're going to receive this blessed life. Well, here's the interesting thing. In the ESV, if you look at the word will be put, or that phrase, well, that is a third person, plural. So it's this interesting, and I'm going to geek out here a little on you, so just hang with me. In the, in the Greek, there is a construction in which you can use the third person, plural or singular, such as they, to refer to God. It's this impersonal Um, way in which they would refer to God that is acknowledging his holiness and greatness so they don't even say his name, much like in early Hebrew tradition in our translations of the Bible where they translate Yahweh as Lord. So in other words, there is this way in, in which it is speaking of God, but there is this third person plural in which it could be speaking 
of other people. Simply put, it's a double entendre is, is the way that you look at it. It can be interpreted both ways equally. So here's the cool takeoff. Here's the cool payoff, if you will. If you don't judge, if you don't condemn, if you forgive and you give, God's going to respond in this amazing way in your life. But I believe the text also implies and brings to mind the reality is if you live like that, other people, other brothers and sisters, specifically other disciples, will respond in that way as well. If you forgive in a church, guess what? If you're leading by constantly forgiving, you're going to be a part of a church that's very forgiving. If you are constantly giving and being generous, you will be in a church more than likely that is a very generous and giving church. If you are in a church that is loving and not judgmental and con condemning of people and sharing the gospel, if you are doing that, you will likely be a part of a church that is very non-judgmental and non-condemning. You will definitely be sharing the truth of the gospel about sin, judgment, and hell, but that's not you. That's just being faithful and being actually loving because you don't want people there. But it's this amazing duality in Scripture of God's power and interaction in our life and the blessings we receive from Him and this proverbial reality of a good way to live within the body of Christ. You tell me, what kind of church do you want? One that is, as you walk in the doors, the first thing people say is, well, that's a stupid looking mask. Couldn't you have done better? Or do you want someone that says, hey, glad to see you today. I don't care if you have a mask or not. Come on in. Or do you want someone to say, hey, how can I pray for you this week? How can I be an encouragement for you? I notice you're, you're a little down today. How can I be a blessing? So difference between going to church and living what it looks like to have faith, or what we'd call the Sermon on the Mount. And he finishes with this very self-explanatory passage in a parable. And I got to laugh because not every church uh, has blind people in them. We have a great uh, man whom I love and a, a dear friend who leads our prayer ministry. Uh, he is blind. So I can kind of laugh. Please don't. When I laugh, don't think I'm laughing at blind people. I'm not. But it starts out with this hilarious, in verse 39, picture. It says, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And I have a little fun with my friend who's blind. Because occasionally, as we're leading him around and I'm taking him to my truck, I might run him into the side of the truck, just accidentally. Right? <laughs> just to have fun. And he has a good sense of humor, and I love him. But the reality of the silliness of a blind person leading another blind person, it, it's kind of funny a little bit until someone gets hurt, right? Just like your kids, like it's all fun and games until someone gets, goes to the ER, right? But that's the ridiculous, ridiculous idea of someone who is ignoring Jesus' teaching here, who's just going to church, who's just serving in ministry, because just going to church, just serving in ministry, just having Bible studies, that doesn't automatically affect the heart. You literally could have all the theology 
that you could possibly want mapped out. You could be the perfect church attender. You could serve in every ministry. You could be incredibly generous in, in, in tithing, but you could be sitting here right now full of angst and bitterness and heartache and purposelessness and hopelessness. Going places and doing things is not relational. It doesn't automatically get that relationship. Living as sons and daughters of God is relational. Verse 40 says, a disciple, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. There was nothing ever more demotivating when I first read that verse, right? Like a disciple will be like his teacher. Really? That's the standard? I got to be like Jesus? I'll be like Bob, Harry. I'll even try maybe one of the other disciples, like Peter, right? He is messed up. But really, that's my standard? I got to be like Jesus? I might as well give up right now. I didn't understand what it meant. What it meant was this, is Jesus is this holy, perfect son of God. And he is perfectly reflecting the Father. We were created in the image of God. We were not created gods. We were created in the image of God. We don't have to be God. We cannot be God, as is taught in the health and wealth gospel of the Creflo Dollars and, and the Kenneth Copelands of the world. We are not little gods. We are created to reflect God, his image. And to reflect someone means you're conformed to their perspective. Parents, I know you love your kids, but sometimes I've talked to some of you and you wish you would have done maybe not quite so good of job of raising your kids in your image. Because they're, they take the good side, but they also take the bad, right? And you're like, where did you get that from? It must have been your father. It wasn't me, right? But we are to be like our teacher. So it means we are to reflect who Jesus is. If you don't get any other concept from today's message about what faith really looks like, if you're in any way confused, and hopefully you can't because he's been so simple here. This isn't deep theology. It's theology applied. It, just simple thing. When people hear you, when they see you, when they watch you, do they see Jesus? Do they hear Jesus or do they hear your judgments, your condemnation? When you give, are you giving out of your own heart or out of a heart that is being conformed to God? He finishes it with verse 42. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye. Let me take it out. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Good judgment. We're helping one another. We're admonishing one another. We're encouraging one another. We're loving one another. We're building one another up. And as you do that, you haven't arrived and you're just telling everyone else what to do. It's the one another versus. And unless you take the time to examine your own heart, more than likely, your admonishment, your correction, will not be appreciated and will not be received well. 
But notice this. He doesn't say that you won't have the speck in your eye still. You're just taking the log out. There are some very obvious sins in our life that we need to get rid of. But we never arrive at perfection this side of heaven, though some believe we can. But I truly believe if we just start with the simple logs. Have you ever had anyone do that as a boss? Walk into your office or maybe a teacher and just absolutely rip you. And the entire time you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I was wrong, but guess what? You do something even worse, right? How dare you even speak to me? Especially as a parent, sometimes you're just laying into your kids and your kids are like, oh, really? (laughs) Well, let's talk, mom. Let's talk, dad, because I've seen, I've lived here my whole life and I've seen you do this, right? They're like, oh, don't do as I do, do as I say. It's tough being a parent, right? But you don't stop being a parent because you're not perfect. Hopefully, you try to take the log out of your own eye. And it changes as you go to your children, as you go to your employees. If you have a boss that comes to you and says, hey, we got to have a hard conversation here. But first, just want to let you know, I've walked in your shoes. I know it's hard. As a matter of fact, I'm still working on some things here. I'll, be, I'll just be completely transparent. But let's talk and see if we can work on this one thing. That, that's a game changer. This is actually in our constitution and bylaws as a church on how we are to operate. If you've ever wondered why be a member of our church, it's not because we have you sign anything. We don't. We just take you through how do we behave as a church. And when we're dealing with sin and when we're dealing with problems in the body, the first step is first overlook offenses if you can. That's in in, uh, Proverbs 19.11. It's to our glory to overlook offenses. Just as as an employee, your boss overlooks a lot of bad stuff. But when it comes down to it, if you need to address something, first examine your own heart. Luke chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, take the plank out. And then Matthew chapter 18, go to them one-on-one. The Bible is this perfect process for being a great boss, a great parent, a great spouse. Imagine that. Well, we'll finish here. What does perfect faith look like? It just looks like a person trying to follow Jesus genuinely. Not a person that comes to church necessarily. Hopefully you do, because we love seeing you. Just ask yourself, Am I trying to look more like Jesus? That's a hard question, but it's the very question that Jesus demands. Let's pray. Father, I know it's been a trying week for a lot of people. It seems like we say that every single week, but I'm just so thankful that you are our Lord and we confess you as Lord. We can have hope in you, and we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. No matter what happens in our nation, good or bad, help us to remember that. 
if we've been caught up in the things of this world and pursuing riches and fame and greed and all the things that we're led to believe leads to hope, help us to repent of that and turn to you. If we've been caught up in the anger of of seeing things that we don't like, help us to repent of that, Lord. Help us to be at peace and to have the joy that comes in being sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, if there is anyone sitting here right now that has never made the decision to simply trust in you as their Lord and Savior, to become a disciple by believing that God raised Jesus from the dead and to trust in him as Lord, I pray they make that decision right here, right now where they're sitting. It's not complicated, Father. You just lay it out in your word. It's just to repent and turn of our sins, to ask God to forgive us, to trust in that, and to confess him as Lord, meaning we will follow him. Our lives are no longer our own. We will truly seek to be disciples. Your word says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if they would simply do that, they will be saved. They have been given eternal life. Father, we thank you for any of those that have made that decision. Give them strength and and perseverance to live that out. Give them the bravery to to come forward and to make that decision public. Father, as we leave here today, help us to truly simplify things and place you first in our priorities and not last. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.